0: Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth, Or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Today's passage is
1: about an important doctrine about the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's something that is crucial to the Christian faith, uh, something that is a bedrock Of what we believe and so I want to start off just by reminding us of uh, what the Westminster Confession says about it. I've got a couple of paragraphs here I want to read to you and they're going to be up on the screen. The Westminster says God the Father has ordained a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ to whom he has given all power and judgment. In that day not only will the apostate angels be judged but all the people who've lived on earth will appear before the court of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and actions and be judged according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. And then it goes on to say, Christ wants us to be completely convinced that there is going to be a day of judgment as a deterrent to sin for everyone and as an added consolation for the godly in their suffering. He has also made sure that no one knows when that day will be, so that we may never rest secure in our worldly surroundings. But, not knowing what hour the Lord will come, we must always be alert and may always be ready to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. So that's the basic idea. That's the basic doctrine of the second coming of Christ, but this week as I've been thinking about it, uh, and, and especially in light of James' instructions for us regarding the second coming, I've been reminded that this doctrine, maybe more than any other, is one that we cannot simply put in the back of our heads and store it there. It's not just a doctrine that we need to know about, but it's something that should make a difference in our lives and an impact in the world. And so this morning, as we talk about this doctrine, I want us to learn three things. I want us to learn that the doctrine of the second coming requires an active patience. Secondly, the doctrine of the second coming produces love in the church and in our relationships. And thirdly, the doctrine of the second coming bears fruit in the world. So it requires an act of patience, it produces love in the church, and it bears fruit in the world. So let's just jump right into it. It requires an act of patience. So uh, you may notice on the little texting at the bottom, uh, my children are now visiting with their grandparents. Uh, Hey kids, I saw your text at the bottom. Um... I'm glad you're watching us this morning. Uh, They found out about a week before leaving that they were going to get a chance to finally go see their grandparents. We were supposed to go originally for spring break and then, of course, COVID hit and it ruined all of our plans. But to say that our kids were excited about seeing their grandparents last week was an understatement. They packed their bags a week ahead of time. And during the week, I I found my son taking a nap on the couch in the living room, and I asked him what he was doing, and he said he was trying to take extra naps so that the time would pass more quickly so that he could go and see his grandparents. And I understand why. They love their grandparents. They want to see them. They want to do all the fun stuff that they get to do that they can't get to do around mom and dad. But of course, that doesn't really make time go faster. There's nothing you can do to make time go faster. And so, all week long, I had to encourage my kids, be patient. The day is going to get here before you know it. See, we need patience when there's something desirable ahead of us. Whether it's something simple like just making it to the front of the line at Walgreens or Getting out of a traffic jam so we can finally get to our destination. Or even just getting to the end of the day so we can rest and veg out for a minute. Patience is required when there's something coming up that we're looking forward to, but we can't quite get there yet. And so it's really appropriate that James would begin this passage with the phrase, Be patient. He says, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. The second coming of Christ is the ultimate desirable moment for the people of God. And of course, these people that he's pastoring, of course, they're going to be excited about that. They they would be excited about getting out of the daily grind finally and seeing their Savior being in the presence of their Heavenly Father who loves them deeply. Who wouldn't be excited about that? Well, maybe us. Maybe us, I think. I actually think there's a pretty big disconnect in our lives around the promise of Christ's return. If you're out there watching this and you consider yourself a Christian, uh, I think for many of us, this is just one of those ideas that we, we hear all the time, that we say we believe. It's a doctrine that we profess, but it rarely captures our hearts. It rarely captures our imaginations. In all my time as a pastor, I've never had to teach what James is teaching here. I've never had to to tell people like I had to tell my kids last week to just be patient. The second coming will be here any minute. It's okay. Just chill out. I know you're excited. And I'm kind of sad about that. To be honest. Not just for you, but but I think that way too. I'm, I'm sad for myself. It shouldn't be this way. We should be excited. We should be a little impatient for the return of Jesus. But I can remember in my own life, especially as a teenager in my early 20s, I remember thinking about the this idea of Jesus coming back. And I'd say, you know, it would be great for Jesus to come back, but not yet. I, there's some things I'd like to do first. If Jesus, Jesus could come back, but I'd really like to maybe get married, have kids, accomplish a few things in my life, and then Jesus could come back. Anybody ever had those thoughts? Oh, yeah. yeah Yeah, we think that way, because we're fools, mm-hmm. because we're fallen. Because we believe that there is something out there that is going to be satisfying, that's going to make us happy, that's going to last. But has that ever happened with anything? Has there ever been, those of you who have gotten to live some of your lives, have there ever been an achievement, a relationship, a position, a paycheck, an event? Has there ever been anything that has brought joy that really lasts? But this promise, the promise of Christ's return, is that thing. It is the moment when the deep longings of your heart will be fulfilled. It is the moment of the restoration of all things. Listen to that famous passage at the end of Revelation that describes what it will be like. John writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. What follows the second coming of Christ is complete and absolute freedom from sin. It is an existence without fear, without anxiety, without lust, without betrayal, without harm. It is a world where there is no pain, no injustice, no racism, no political divisions, no sickness. There's no COVID there. And at the center of it all is this perfect assurance that we are dwelling in the presence of God, an almighty God who loves us and who has claimed us as his own. If you believe that, there's no way that you can look at that and say, Well, you know, that sounds great, but I've got a trip to Disney planned in a couple years. And I'd, I'd prefer if you wait. If Christ is our true hope, then the small and fading things of this world, they can't compare. If we really believed it, my point is, we'd get excited about it a true understanding of this, it would require a patience. But I'm talking about like an active patience, that, that kind of jittery kind of patience that you have to strain for. That jittery kind of nervous patience when you know something wonderful is just around the corner. So that's the first point. The second coming, it requires an active patience. But secondly, the doctrine of the second coming it produces something. It produces love in the church and amongst the people of God. The first instruction James gives us is be patient. The second is that we don't grumble and we don't judge one another. Verse 9 says, Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. He tells us not to complain, not to grumble, not to be judgmental. And it's a sad reality, but Christians have become known as judgmental people. I think if we were going to survey this neighborhood and ask them, what are some of the things that are, they like least about Christians? What are some of the things that uh, turn them off about the church? I imagine one of the top things on that list is, is that they perceive Christians to be judgmental. Christians judge others. And unfortunately, there's a lot of truth to that. For a people who claim to be saved by grace we can often have very little grace for other people. It's like the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 18 of a man who has forgiven what was basically billions of dollars of debt only to go and immediately shake down a guy who owed him a few thousand dollars. It's amazing how we Christians can be forgiven all of our sins, for all of eternity, and yet have no grace or understanding for other people. We can experience this huge amount of forgiveness, and yet we can blow up at a moment when we run across somebody who just has different political views than we do. And so James reminds us about another fact of the second coming. He tells us that when Jesus returns, not only is this going to be a joyful occasion when he restores all the broken things, but when he returns, he's also bringing the final judgment against sin. He's coming. And in that day, we're going to be called to give account. We're going to have to answer. For all the things that we have said and thought and done. James puts it this way. He says, the judge is standing at the door. The judge is standing at the door right now. So in the same way that the joy of Christ coming to restore things should get us excited. The knowledge that justice is coming, that it's right around the corner, that should lead us to live righteous lives, to live in obedience, to keep those great commandments, to love God with all our heart, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. It just makes sense, right? If we claim to have been loved and forgiven by God, it makes no sense for us to live petty, judgmental lives. And if we believe that God cares how we live, that he's righteous, that he's just, and that he's coming soon, that he's at the door, that he could be here any moment, then we should be living lives where we're seeking to please Him. Lives that are not lives of judgment, but lives that reflect His grace, that show His mercy to people around us. And of course, it's not just personal agreements, personal disagreements in in the community that, that can cause Christians to be judgmental. It's not just one-on-one stuff that can make us be unloving, not just relational stuff, but he also reminds us that there's also a pressure coming from the world at large. In verse 10, he goes on, Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought in. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. There is pressure coming to us from the world at large. And and James knows the reality of suffering that is always a part of the Christian life. And so in this passage, he talks about Job. He points back to the Old Testament and he gives this example of Job who, if you're familiar with the story, even though he was by all accounts a godly man, he was allowed to endure tremendous pain. He lost all of his wealth. He lived through the death of all his children and and the loss of his own personal health. And he remained faithful to God. He points to that because when the pressure is on us, when we are suffering, obedience is hard. When we suffer, holiness, honoring God becomes far more difficult. It's easy to resolve to love your neighbors when life is going smoothly. It's easy to say, I'm going to love my neighbors, I'm going to care for people, I'm not going to think first of myself when things are working out for you. But it's another thing entirely when we're under stress or when we're dealing with tragedy. It's easy to love people when life is going our way, but it's usually not. In a broken world, we're always going to be facing challenges. There will always be, quote, reasonable excuses for us to treat people poorly, for us to dishonor God and the way we treat others, the ways that we act. But James reminds us of Job because he wants us to know that in the difficult times, we are especially called to persevere. And he reminds us that one of the ways, one of the tools that can aid us in that, that can keep, help us keep a perspective in the midst of our suffering is to remember the second coming. We can be faithful and we can be gracious even in the hardest times because Jesus is coming back. And he's gonna deal with the pain. He's gonna deal with the injustice. He is the judge and he will judge. He is the judge though, right? Not us. And that's really good news. Because it means there is a day coming when he will deal fairly and righteously with all the sin in this world. He sees our suffering. And he will bring justice for people who are suffering. He will bring justice for you. But, he's the judge. He's a righteous judge. And unlike us, in our moments when we grumble, when we become judgmental, when we are under pressure, unlike us when we have those knee-jerk reactions, God's judgment will also be compassionate, merciful, and completely righteous. When we're patient in our suffering, we're not foregoing justice. We're simply entrusting it to the judge. The judge who, James tells us, is standing at the door. We're not surrendering to the evil of the world. But we are living in light of the fact that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and all will surrender to him. If he is the judge and not us, then that means we can show love and mercy and compassion to one another. And if we believe he's coming back, that's what we're going to do. And that's the second point. The doctrine of the second coming, it produces love. It produces love in the church. And thirdly, the doctrine of the second coming produces fruit in the world. So what do you think about when you imagine this day when Christ returns? A lot of times, we have these images of separation. This moment of of division, right? The moment that scripture talks about when the sheep are separated from the goats, when the wheat is separated from the thorns. In the Westminster, it says exactly that. It says the second coming is the time when the righteous will go into everlasting life and they will receive fullness of joy and refreshment which will come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked, who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Christ, they will be thrown into eternal torment and punished with everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. Separation is an important image when we think about the second coming. But James also reminds us of another image of the second coming. One that is also used pretty frequently in Scripture. He says, See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. He brings up this image of the harvest. Did you hear it? He compares our patient waiting to the way a farmer waits for land to produce crops, the way he waits for the rains to come so he can finally bring in the harvest. The harvest is a very common image that scripture uses to talk about the return of Christ. It's the time when Christ will come and gather up his fruit. The fruit of the gospel message growing and transforming people's lives throughout all the world, across all generations. And it's kind of beautiful that James, in the middle of this passage where he is encouraging suffering Christians, where he's reprimanding petty Christians, and where he's trying to point us, remind us about the joy of Christ's coming, that James is also reminding us that we have a role to play in the harvest. Christians are not simply called to be moral people. Our main purpose in life is is not simply living decent lives, and trying not to be too judgy while we do it. No, we're called to spread the good news of Christ's salvation. To see God plant the seed of his salvation and reap a harvest of souls. I said a few minutes ago that our lack of excitement About Christ's return is one of the ways I know that we're missing the true weight of this doctrine. But even more than that, it's the lack of evangelism. It's the lack of fruit that we've seen that has me convicted. Because there is so much opportunity around us every day. There are so many opportunities for us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our family members. There are so many opportunities for us, even alone in our homes, to labor in prayer and to cry out to God to intercede on behalf of our city. We should be like that farmer who is laser-focused on the land as he's waiting for the harvest to come. We should be watering the ground with the tears of our prayers. We should be checking anxiously to see if there's been any growth, asking the people in our lives to see how God might be working in their hearts. We should be sharing the testimony of how God has transformed us, how he is working in us. But most of us, we do nothing. We're silent. We're not tending to the fields because maybe We don't really think that Jesus is coming back, at least not anytime soon. But if we believe the gospel of John, if we believe that famous verse where John wrote that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life, if we believe that verse that John wrote, then we should also believe John when he wrote At the end of Revelation, he who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. So here's my message for you today. Now is the time. Jesus is coming again. And when he does, no one will escape his judgment. No Gossip, no grumbling, no judgmentalism will be excused. After he's done, no evil and no pain will remain. He will come and he will restore all things. And on that day, the prophets tell us Malachi tells us that no one is going to be able to stand up to his scrutiny. Malachi says that he is like a refiner's fire. But today, right now, he has sent his son to save us from that judgment. He's promised us that if we would come to him in repentance and faith, if we would turn from living for ourselves and turn to him, then we have no need to fear. Because he will clothe us in his perfect righteousness, in his record, not our own. Something that we could never possibly earn. He will cover us so that we can stand up to his scrutiny. The repentant have no need to fear. If he is your savior, then you can be sure that one day, and maybe a day not far off, God's going to greet you, not with the greeting you deserve, but with the greeting Christ deserves. He'll welcome you with open arms. He'll say, I'm glad you're home. I love you. I've seen all that you've endured. Well done, my good and faithful servant. If you're in Christ you can get excited that that day is coming. You can love each other. You can be gracious with other people because that day is coming. But you and I, we have to use this time we have. We have to use this time to share the good news of his salvation so that when that day does come, everyone can be rejoicing with us. And that's one of the reasons I love this church. Because this church is not a holy huddle. It's not a place that we have built to insulate ourselves from the world around us. This church exists for the community. It exists to see people reconciled to God and to each other. Don't forget that. Especially when we're all stuck in our homes and we we don't get to see each other. Don't forget that we are here to reach others, to tell of Christ's wonderful work of salvation, and to get excited for his return. The time's now. Let's not waste it. Let's take some time now to pray. I'm going to invite Pastor Mason up to lead us in the pastoral prayer.